And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of John, the Gospel of John. We're going to be reading a select, a couple of select verses, and then we're going to get into a passage beginning in chapter 15, verse 26, through 16, verse 15. I'm really just totally disregarding the chapter divisions here. But we're going to begin in John chapter 14. I'm going to read three verses, then I'm going to jump ahead and read three more, and then we're going to jump into the full passage that we want to study. And you'll immediately understand the connection between these uh, in relation to our study. So John chapter 14, uh, we'll begin reading in verse 15. We'll read three verses there, then we'll jump ahead to John 14, verse 25. So John 14, verse 15, I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom, God's Word declares, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then if you'll turn over to verse 25 of the same chapter, it reads, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And then if you'll move forward to chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father... He will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. And these things they will do to you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you, but now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart... I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not... Speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Well, we continue our study in Second Corinthians. We moved into chapter 5, and we are going to take a time now to consider really what is just a phrase given to us in chapter 5, verse 5. Not even the complete sentence, just really the last half. 
we are going to expand upon this and really draw in passages such as we have read earlier this morning in John, also in Romans 8 and other portions of First and Second Corinthians. We can go into Ephesians and many other scriptures to talk about the means by which God has set us aside and laid a foundation for our eternity. By doing that, not only through the work of Christ in terms of the judicial work of dealing with sin and its punishment, and certainly that is to be considered and meditated upon and, of course, fill us with awe and wonder and joy and gladness that our sins are no longer accounted against us but are covered in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, There's also, in addition to that aspect of salvation, uh, we look forward and we've talked about looking forward to our future that is secured for us in Christ, where we anticipate a heaven where we are not slaves, not... uh, second class there, but rather that we are there joint heirs with Jesus Christ, children of God, having been transformed into the same image from glory to glory, no longer held by the law, but under the grace. In between that historic work of Christ and our salvation, the judicial work of taking care of sin, its consequences, its penalties, And that future work of Christ, of being in his presence forever, there is a period that we refer to as the Christian life. That period between when we accept Christ as Savior and when we see Christ our Savior face to face, the Lord recognized that it would stretch into decades on occasions, which we saw Just last week isn't much. It's really a very brief period of time that we have to serve the Lord. We look forward to that future time. We don't invest into this house, this tent, this temporary body of sin, of death, of the flesh. For we are looking forward not to just being dead. That is, we talked about that we're not just going to be unclothed but further clothed, that we look forward to being uh, transformed into his image, putting off this body of death that we might receive that body of life for eternity. So during this time period we call the Christian life, we have some challenges before us, don't we? For we still carry along with us this relic uh, called our physical bodies. And all of its desires and lusts and struggles and pains and temporalness, uh, not only time-wise, but also in, in spatially and many other ways, we are so limited. And yet we describe ourselves as the children of God. And we have this relationship with the 
all-powerful, almighty that we've been singing about, the creator of all that exists, the one who we call our father now, who is so far above and beyond all of this that we just sit and marvel and sing songs such as we do uh, about our creator and, and his deity and his majesty uh, for as far beyond us. And yet we are tied here for the time being but yet we claim a relationship with such a being as that. God is spirit. We worshiped in spirit and in truth. And so it is that strange period of time. It's not very long, really, um, but it's a strange time where we are tied to this world with our hopes set on another. And during this time, God recognizes that his children need something. More precisely, we need someone. And Christ repeatedly before leaving this earth, this dwelling, uh, recognized having been in the flesh himself, yeah, without sin, having been in that condition and among this world, recognized that this is difficult and said, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm not going to leave you here and let you just scramble around trying to figure things out, but rather I'm going to leave, and when I leave, I'm going to send an intimate helper, a comforter. And it is he that we want to study this morning as we consider this uh, challenge that is before us of walking the Christian walk and of the security of God's salvation. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the opportunity to look into your word today. And Lord, we marvel at the wonder of our salvation, that you have covered all the bases, that there is nothing lacking. And Lord, we rejoice that though we do not have you here face to face, we have, for those who have trusted in your Son, Jesus Christ, received a standing before you that can only make us marvel. And then beyond that, you have a presence within us that we walk not alone unless we choose to. And Lord, our prayer is that you might guide our study today of your spirit. Not only in relationship to the Christian walk, but to the world as well. And Lord, You've told us that you've left him, sent him, really, to us to guide us in the truth. And that's our desire this morning, to be guided into your truth. And we pray for your spirit's power and work in our midst this morning. For it's certain that no human agent is sufficient to the task without your help. And we thank you or the helper, your spirit. Pray again that he might have liberty to work in our midst this morning. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Paul has taken us from wondering how we can endure hardship into wondering when we will be in God's presence. 
that the latter aspect of the Christian life of looking forward helps us to endure that aspect of persecution and hardship, opposition, and even death itself. That we have a knowledge of a resurrected Lord. That by this knowledge we can be renewed day by day. But it's not just a knowledge alone. And I fear that in the last few messages we may have in our emphasis upon what we know about Christ, not what you feel, but what you know about Christ and your salvation. Uh, I may have inadvertently, or maybe vertently, inadvertently, what's the opposite of inadvertently? I may have neglected to uh, mention what I was planning on doing today, which is to focus our attention that we are not just inherently students of a book of truth, but we are in a relationship with the one to whom it points, and thus we don't worship this book, but rather the one that it declares, and that we are not just students intellectually of this, but we are spiritual students of this. That is that we have mixed faith with that knowledge, For it is certain that there are those who have studied this book, even in its original languages, who have not mixed faith with that knowledge, and it has done them no benefit. And so the knowledge that Paul speaks about here is a knowledge that is intertwined not only with an intellectual assent to truth, to facts, to information, but a belief in those that we bring this information into our lives as authoritative truth. And that we do so with help. And that help isn't just God's word. We have God's word, but God's word is a tool. And that tool is in the hands of one who the Bible refers to as the Holy Spirit. And thus we get to Ephesians and we look at the armor of God and there's one offensive weapon and it doesn't belong to you and me. And you've heard me say this repeatedly is the sword of, not the Christian, it is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. That this is his instrument that he uses to do his work in us. And so the deriving of knowledge from God's Word is not something we do independently. But rather we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit's work. And we're going to see that in John. But the phrase that Paul comes to, remember we talked about that not only has he prepared a place for us, but he, in verse 5 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, has prepared us for that place. And it is that preparation of the Christian for his eternal state that really brings us to the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, in full force. And Paul doesn't take much time here. He has taken extensive time. We studied in 1 Corinthians We're going to see it again. We have already looked at it a little bit at the end of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. Um, He has referenced it in many places. And here he simply boils it down to this phrase, and that is, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee, is what my translation has there in the New King James. Um, Some of yours may have as a down payment or as a surety. And uh, that is that he is putting his money where his mouth is. He's not just saying things, but he is actually here, present, that we have a peace 
of our future with us today. And we talk about being in the presence of Christ, of seeing him face to face, being in the new Jerusalem and enjoying the light and the, and the river of life and the fruit from the trees of life and all those things that we associate with eternity. And no, I didn't mention any clouds or harps. Sorry. Okay, very real place. Uh, we, we associate that, um, and yet we have already a presence Even as we look forward to being in the presence of Christ, we today have a presence. And that is in the person of a Holy Spirit. And so he becomes this down payment, this earnest deposit in us of what is sure to come. And its surety is ours because we have received the earnest deposit. And so we have the buyer, if you will, the the one who is going to be uh, paying the price, coming and saying, there is a time when I will pay the full amount. Well, you'll have the full experience of being in my presence with your new body and all the things that Paul's talked about, of putting off this mortal and putting on immortality, of getting rid of a tent so that we can get into our building Um, not made with hands, and that's the future, but I'm going to give you a guarantee. I'm going to give you something so you know that that future is secure for you, and that one is the Holy Spirit, and this is why the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is so precious and important to us that we often, in fact, I have in occasions past confronted people and who were questioning their salvation, and, well, am I really a child of God or not? And I'll ask a question, are you filled with the Spirit? Does the Spirit of God reside in you? Are you of the Spirit of God? Why? Why that question? You might say, well, there's a lot of Christians walking around trying to figure out whether or not the Spirit of God is in them or not. Um, And that's a deplorable state, by the way, that the church should be in such a condition we have in the last 100 years, really in the last 70 to 80 years, really muddied these waters with a lot of, of error that's been introduced that would associate, well, here's the evidence that the Spirit of God dwells within you. Um, you have to um, roll around. You have to speak gibberish. You have to uh, participate in this or that, or you have to have this emotional experience. And it's usually a roller coaster there on like this, highs and lows and Uh, That's really not what God portrays the Holy Spirit as. And as we go through this, we'll find that this one who is the guarantee of your future, it is the down payment on God's full payment to come. And so it is that which gives us the confidence that the future is indeed mine. I did not make it mine by my intellectual scent, but here's the evidence that God has saved me is the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And we have looked and we'll continue to look at at the gifts of the Spirit and we we considered them uh, in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. Uh, We look and focus in on that evidence. We have seen in uh, passages like in Galatians 5, what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Uh, What is that that is quantifiable, that we can point to and say, this is Holy Spirit's work. 
This is proof that he resides in here. And if he resides in here, then I have a sure hope of eternity there. And so during this strange period of time, when I am called a sojourner, a stranger, a traveler, an ambassador in a foreign land, because I am now a citizen of another place, I have this one who is that reminder and that sure promise that what he has begun in me, he will complete. And while we all long for the completion date, the payoff, if you will, we can be rest assured because of the deposit that's been put down. For it is not a small deposit, it is not a tiny percentage, but rather it is a significant one. And so God, who is in the active role of preparing us for our eternity, has given us someone, the Spirit, as that deposit. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, if you will, and we will see how active he is in Romans 8. Oh, we should back up to verse 18. I was going to pick up in verse 20. But uh, we're going to back up because it goes along with what we saw in 1 Corinthians 4. As for, for I consider this, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There it is again. Here's the present. We look forward to the future. We endure the present because we have a sureness about the future. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption to the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Wow. The Holy Spirit's active involvement in this transitory period of the Christian experience, where we are moving from being children of darkness and being prepared to be Residents of light. We are being transformed from one glory to greater glory. And this is our hope, that we have this future. And right now, the Holy Spirit is helping us. And I think it's great that Paul reminds us of our weaknesses. He's taking where we are weakest... And that's where he recognizes we need his help the most. 
And so Holy Spirit comes along where we are the weakest. And, and the evidence here is that one of the areas that we are naturally weak in is in our prayers. And I would have to conclude, looking at my Christian life, that that is true. That we all too often depend upon ourselves, our strength, our knowledge, our resources, our world, the physical. And that is a known relationship. It is the relics of the past that we are attached to. And the Spirit comes and it says that among His helps... Among the weaknesses that he helps is that uh, we need a lot of help in prayer. Because we're not praying for the things we ought to. We generally pray silly prayers. You know, what are our prayers about, this tent? Think about it. This tent. We're going to pray for this tent to have food, this tent to have clothing, this tent to have transportation, this tent to have uh, lodging, uh, this tent to have health, this tent to have comfort. Um, Consider how much of our praying is about the physical. And we begin to recognize what Paul means by we need the Spirit's help with this weakness we have because we don't know how to pray. When you go to John, if you want to turn back there to John 14, 15, 16, and it is uh, a passage of Scripture I read regularly, these three chapters. Um, they, they impacted me very powerfully in uh, my early days of ministry, and I've referenced them regularly in my ministry ever since. We have found this reference that we picked up in chapter 14 to the Holy Spirit. And we talked about the Spirit of Truth, The world can't receive him uh, because they don't know Christ. They don't know him, but you've received him. And so we have the spirit within us who's guiding us into all truth. Uh, And we pull those out of the context of these three chapters. And we do a disservice. I did a disservice to it this morning because I didn't want to read three chapters to you today. I didn't think you'd tolerate that. Would you have tolerated? I think you probably would have. But... um, We didn't read all three chapters, 14, 15, 16. But we pull these passages out about the Holy Spirit, this helper who's going to come, who's going to abide with us forever, it says, who is going to lead us into truth, who is going to teach us all things and help us remember. He's referred to over and over again by Jesus Christ in John as the helper, the helper, the helper, and then the comforter and the helper again and He is going to guide us and direct us. He is going to speak not of his own things, but the things of the Father. Just the Son shared the things of the Father. So the Spirit is going to do that. But what I want to draw you back from, these specific passages on the Holy Spirit, is to find out what this whole section of John is about. It is about your prayer life. Read through John 14, 15, and 16, And notice how many times Jesus says, if you ask, if you'd only ask, what does that mean? Who are you asking? You're asking God, and that is your prayer life. If you ask, 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 and this passage says, I'll give it to you. There are some conditions, absolutely. There's some if clauses. 
if this happens, if this happens, if this happens, if you know me, if you abide in me, if you love me, if you keep my commandments, yes, there are conditions there. And this is what I have focused my energies on, is meeting the conditions of John 14 and 15 and 16. These conditions, are you abiding in Christ? Are we abiding in his word? Are we loving one another? Are we loving God? Are we keeping his commandments? Um, Are we fruitful? Are we bearing fruit? All these if clauses. And you read through these three chapters, you're going to draw out all of these ifs. You meet these conditions. Ask whatever you will, and it will be done for you. Why would Jesus take so much time and energy with these disciples before his departure to instruct them in what active prayer life looks like? It it is the natural, powerful, effectual outworking of the Christian given over to God. We do it not in our own strength, but we have, in the midst of all of this, this guy named a helper. The helper, the helper, the helper. All along, these passages talking about ask, 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 so that I can do this powerful work in you that God wants to do. Talking about your prayer life, Jesus keeps inserting these phrases, you're not going to be alone, you're going to have a helper, someone to help you. And Paul, in Romans 8, brings these together. He's helping with our weaknesses And by Jesus' quantity and quality of instruction here, we recognize one of the weaknesses he anticipated in his absence would be our prayers. And so he comes along to help. To help guide us in the truth. Why? So we could obey it. That requires our will, our surrender to that. But he'll guide you in the truth. So you can obey it, and then you'll meet the conditional statements, the if clauses, if you, if you, if you. But it also guides us in the truth to direct our prayers, that we pray as we ought. Mixing this truth with faith, that we go to the Father with full confidence and expectation, and we consider our lives, that Lord, um, if you... Count me as your child. And I pray this truth to you. And the Holy Spirit is that one that directs us. Some have made this Romans 8 a little bit of a mystery that somehow God, that Spirit um, goes to the mind of God and gets truth and, and that He uh, speaks words that... Uh, that it says that groanings cannot be uttered, that we can't speak them, and they and they've mystified this a little bit. But what we really boil down to is that the Spirit of God takes the truth of God that we have before us in God's Word, and He speaks it to the Father. I have had some that have criticized some who just pray Scripture. And I can never understand that. Um, Because I don't think there's any better things to pray than Scripture. For this is truth, that God has revealed to us the things that we ought to and should ask. 
But Paul, in 2 Corinthians as well as in Romans, is trying to direct our attention away from focusing on this tent, on this world, on these sufferings, on on the stuff that we're enduring now, and allowing the Holy Spirit to come and help prepare us for heaven. And I believe one of the strongest evidences of the Holy Spirit's work in that is to reveal to us truth through conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment that, that Jesus talks about in John 16, through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, whether you respond to it or not, and that's another area of doctrine, but he will do that work. But he does that work in the whole world. So he is at work, but he is working in terms of conviction of sin to those who don't believe, it says in John 16, 9. But he's convicting not of sin, but of righteousness, not to the world, but to us. He says in verse 10, Because I go to my Father, and you, that is my disciples, see me no more. We are the one, the world's convicted of sin. We are the ones convicted of righteousness. How we ought to live. And then of judgment, because this world is judged and its ruler is judged. And so we do not gain attachment to this world because we know that it is under judgment. It will be destroyed. It will be melted in fervent heat, the Bible says, that all this stuff that we are so concerned with and enamored by is just going to be dissolved. It's, there's going to be a judgment. And if we keep that focus point where we are focused on righteousness, that the Spirit of God leads us to righteousness through truth, by revealing truth to us, that it impacts our praying. And rightly does James tell us that it is the prayers of righteous men that is effectual. And we sit back and we say, oh, do I have the Holy Spirit? And when I ask that question, one of the investigations that you can make to answer that question is, what is my prayer life like? What is... God's work, is he constantly convicting me of sin or is he convicting me of righteousness? Things I ought to be doing. They ought to be doing more for God. They ought to be giving him more of who I am, of my time, energies. They ought to be looking for him, preparing me for heaven more and more. This should be my focus. If the Spirit of God is convicting me of righteousness. But I fear that for too many in the Christian community, we never get past being convicted of sin. Of things that we have no business being participated in. And the Bible says if you're being convicted of sin, it's because you don't believe in Him. That it's for those that don't believe in Christ and need to be convicted of sin. Those who do, who have God as their Father, the Spirit within them, that the Spirit's work there is to convict them of righteousness. This is part of guiding them to truth. To glorify God in us. So be guided into how does God want us to live. And that end result is a powerful prayer life. 
And the idea that somehow a powerful prayer life is dependent upon making sure you're in a certain physical position at a certain place and for a certain quantity of hours just doesn't cut it. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that those things are necessary for active, powerful prayer life. Can they be advantageous to a prayer life? Yes. But the prerequisite is righteousness. Is to abide in Christ, to abide in his word, to love him, keep his commandments, to love the brethren, to bear fruit, fruit that lasts, all these things that John, that Jesus rehearses for us and is recorded by John. This is the down payment of what Christ has for us in eternity, that in this transitory period, we have Holy Spirit coming alongside to help us, help us in our praying. And to help us in our praying means he has to help us in our living so that our living qualifies us to pray. And so he guides us into truth. He convicts us of righteousness. Why? So that we can ask. And we will ask out of a right heart because we are walking in righteousness. We will ask for the right things because we are, have been revealed truth by the Holy, same Holy Spirit that walks us in righteousness, reveals us truth. So now we can ask out of a right heart for the right things, and God responds. If you ask, I'll do it. If you ask, I'll do it. Ask anything in my name, and I'll give it to you. The powerful prayer life is dependent upon a walk in the Spirit. And that walk in the Spirit, the Spirit is an active agent in. The evidence is when he does these twofold work, convicting us of righteousness and, con- and leading us into truth. And that's why when we come to God's word, we ask the Holy Spirit to guide us, to direct us, so that uh, it is not me twisting God's word to conform to what I want it so desperately to say because I have this set of beliefs that I've established and now I've got to find it in God's word. Oh no, that's not being guided in the truth by the Holy Spirit. Paul says the Spirit goes into the very mind of God and reveals truth to us and helps our praying. And so Paul says this is the evidence that you're on your way to glory. The down payment of your eternal state is not a date in time where you prayed the sinner's prayer. It is not a date in time when you got baptized. The down payment for your eternity is the presence and work of Holy Spirit in you every day. That his fruit is there, as Galatians 5 gives us a listing of, verse 22 and 23. That his gifts are work, that his power is evident, um, that when the Holy Spirit, there is a power to live the Christian life, not by our own will, but by his strength, 
this is the down payment. This is the proof. And so when people come to me and they're worried, I don't know if I'm saved, um, well, now we have not talking about salvation in terms of let's recount, uh, did you pray this prayer? Yes. Did you uh, uh, mean it? Yeah, I meant it at the time. Did you get baptized? Yeah. And we can go through all this thing. We quickly take them to 1 John 5 and says these things be written that you may know that you have eternal life. Um, and we slap them on the back and say, you're okay. You got all your bases covered. And we never talk about what's the Holy Spirit doing in your life. And it may seem doctrinally correct to talk about those other things, but fundamentally for the Christian to really know, I have a place reserved for me and I am being prepared for that place by God is the presence of Spirit of God in us. And I don't want it to be some mystical thing that we can't ever really get our handle on. For that's not how Christ presents the ministry of the Spirit of God. But rather that he is ready to help. He is actively engaged in helping us. And it's described for us very plainly to convict us of righteousness to lead us into truth. And we are told to now respond. He has given these two-pronged approach to help us qualified, become qualified for active, powerful praying. We have a responsibility. We are not simply passive recipients of this work and somehow, well, if I'm not praying well, it's the Holy Spirit's fault. No. God does not work in men unilaterally. That is, he does not come in and force issues. He comes in with an offer, with a gift, with a request. And just as Christ knocks at the door, if anyone opens, if which implies that not everyone who gets doors get knocked at opens. If they'll open, I'll come in and abide with them, and they with me. Just as Christ offers, so the Spirit's work is an offer. And so he comes and he convicts us of righteous. Boy, I ought to be doing these things. I ought to be getting into this. I ought to be... You know, I, I should be more bold in presenting Christ to others. I should be... More, you know, I, I, I need to be about the kingdom's business more and more instead of this world's business. I need to be about my king's business more and more. I need to be less focused on this tent and more about being prepared for that building. The Spirit convicts us. Now we get to respond. He waits. What are you going to do about it? And that's why the Bible gives these commands to us with regard to the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. He's going to reveal to you truth. Walk in it. To refuse to walk is to stand still. I'm not going to walk that direction. There is no reason for the Holy Spirit to show you any farther into God's Word. If you refuse to step the one step He has just revealed to you. 
Okay, I want to walk in the Spirit. He's revealed that truth to me. I'm going to live that truth. I'm going to seek to live that and bring that into my life. Wherever that is, and, and uh, wherever you are in your reading and Bible and, and in your study and in your walk with God, um, it might be you know, at the early stages, which is really your speech. James tells us that. That my thought life is evident in my speech, that it is the rudder that guides my ship. Or it can be all the way down to some other aspects of life. He guides us in that truth. If we respond, he leads us further. There's no reason for him to lead us way out there into significant righteousness when we refuse his revelation and don't walk with him in what he has just revealed. There's no need for him to reveal more because you haven't taken a step. And so we are called to walk in the Spirit day by day. We are also told not to grieve the Spirit or to resist the Spirit. Do not resist the Spirit of God. That is that I can work against His work. That as He reveals truth to me, I can reject it. This is part of being the image of God is that we have that kind of liberty, if you will, that we can say no to God. We are the only beings of all of his creation who have the right by divine commission to say no to God. Angels can't do it. That's why they can't get saved. The ones that said, we'll be God, were cast out. They're unredeemable. We alone have been given the divine right to say no. But don't think that that means that you're okay saying no to God. You just you have the divine right to choose the consequences of death. So the Spirit says, here's truth. We can resist it. Ah, that's just your opinion. I think that's truth for some people. That's for pastors. That's for people who live in third world countries, not Americans. We resist truth and we grieve the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says, don't do those. So the presence of the Holy Spirit hasn't extinguished. But it is possible from God's word that we have grieved and resisted him to such a degree that we are not even aware of his presence anymore. Well, what do we do to resolve that? We confess and repent. We turn from that and we start walking in the Spirit's truth that he guides us into. Is perhaps the best part, I'll put it like that, of being a preacher is to get done on Sunday morning and go, boy, I don't know where that sermon came. Well, I do know. That sermon was from the Lord because that wasn't exactly what I prepared. But it really hit. And, and by the way, the first person I preached to is me, and you hopefully know that. that my, I'm the number one recipient of my sermons. 
And any preacher that isn't in that situation, you don't want to hear them. When we have the Holy Spirit guiding, and it can convict us, boy, I should be more righteous than this. I shouldn't be having these issues in my life. And I should be serving the Lord more and more. And I hate sin. Not that we don't ever sin, but I don't need the Holy Spirit to convict me of that because I know it's sin and I hate it. But I need the Holy Spirit's help to guide me into more righteousness. I want to be more like Christ. And this guiding in righteousness is, takes us right back to chapter 3, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the same, by the Spirit, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That the Spirit of the Lord transforms us from glory to glory into the same image of Christ. That just as Christ was led by the Holy Spirit, so we ought to be led by the Holy Spirit. Just as he was indwelt by the Spirit of God, we find our need to be indwelt by him. To be directed and, and ministered to, we have that similar need. And so we have this helper. And as he transforms our life to prepare us for that place, we have confidence. There's no doubting, there's no wavering, there's no, boy, I hope I make it. If this is the spirit that you have as one of doubt and, and a lack of confidence, then no wonder you cannot endure anything for Christ's kingdom. It is no mistake that verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 5 starts right off with, so we are always confident. Wow. It's a confidence that says, I see proof of Holy Spirit in my life. And he's at work. And I'm not always consistent, but I strive to walk in the Spirit, to have the fruit of the Spirit evident in me. And if that is the case, we can go through life with extraordinary confidence. Paul says, I'm always confident. There's never a time when he was questioning his relationship with God. He was always confident. Not necessarily that everything he was doing was exactly God's will. There were times that he struggled too, and God had to direct him to Macedonia instead of to Asia. He had to have a breakup with Barnabas hooked up with Silas to get on a mission, and then had to revert and say, no, John Mark, the guy that broke Barnabas and our mission team apart, um, is profitable for the ministry. And so Paul recognized that he made mistakes in judgment, but it never made him question his future. Because that wasn't based upon that. It was based upon the presence of the Spirit guiding him into truth based upon the Spirit convicting him of righteousness. And so he has this confidence that is linked to verse 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. And again, verse 8, we are confident. 
We have a confidence of the future in this present time because we have a peace of the future in this present time. For the genuine Christian, we have a peace of eternity here. Our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, which we have from God. We are not our own. We were bought with a price, therefore we glorify God in our body and in our spirit, which is God's. This is the evidence that I have something for sure. And therefore, this transitory period between my judicial cleansing, my judicial righteousness being established in Christ and my full experience of it, during this period, I can walk with confidence. Paul could walk with confidence. We can walk by faith and not by sight because we see the proof of Holy Spirit's work. I am being convicted to live righteously. I am being guided into his truth. I see the fruit of Holy Spirit in my life. And I see this one helper, this comforter, this guide using his sword in me and on me. And thus I look forward to him preparing me for that wonderful place. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and for this wonderful peace of heaven that you've placed within all who trust in you. We marvel that we in this place, earth, in these weak bodies can house the Spirit of God. Lord, we ought then to be more than conquerors, as you've called us to be. We ought then to be bold and confident in our living. Help us to be. Lord, we ought to be perseverers with joy, overcoming. Lord, I thank you for your spirit. Lord, I also know that it is very possible that some in the hearing of this message may not be able to answer the questions today in the affirmative. They are not being, are not being led in the truth. They are not being convicted of righteousness, but only of sin. And Lord, I pray that they might respond to that wonderful work of your Spirit to convict the world of sin, that they might believe in you trust you as Savior and receive your salvation and that one who is the deposit of the new eternity awaiting them. Lord, help us this week to walk in your Spirit, to have your hand reveal truth to us, your Spirit reveal truth to us, and for us to accept it, not to resist it. And Lord, our prayers that we might be found ready to surrender ourselves to his guidance. 
to your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.